Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 79, Bernard Chow, How Evidence of Subsequent Remedial Measures Matters. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Bernard Chow. Bernard is professor of law and co-director of the Empirical Justice Institute at the University of Denver's Sturm College of Law. Bernard teaches patent law, intellectual property, and contracts. His writing focuses on patents and technology, as well as experimental work on cognitive biases in legal decision-making. Our podcast today features Bernard's new article, How Evidence of Subsequent Remedial Measures Matters, which was co-written with Kylie Santos and is forthcoming in the Missouri Law Review. In it, Bernard takes on an evidentiary favorite, Rule 407, the rule barring evidence of subsequent remedial measures. Like many evidentiary rules, Rule 407 operates on a number of empirical assumptions. For example, it assumes that jurors will unfairly punish defendants for taking subsequent remedial measures, engaging in a kind of hindsight bias. In addition, because Rule 407 only bars SRMs for the purpose of proving negligence or product defect and not for other purposes, 407 also assumes that limiting instructions are effective. The existing psychological literature, though, makes one skeptical whether jurors are able to actually perform this kind of mental gymnastics. Through two psychological experiments, Bernard tries to get a handle on Rule 407. What do jurors do with evidence of a subsequent remedial measure? And are limiting instructions effective in this context? Bernard, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Your article is, of course, on Rule 407. To start us off, can you quickly summarize what the rule is and the reasons that we have it? So Evidence Rule 407 basically says that subsequent remedial measures, namely whether you sort of fixed a problem that you originally had, is not admissible in court as evidence. And it's subject to a number of pretty significant exceptions. But the main reason we, well, we really have it for two reasons. One is we're trying to encourage people that maybe have a problem to fix things. And you could imagine that they may not want to fix that problem if that fix is going to be introduced as evidence against them. It looks sort of like a concession of liability. And the second reason that we have that rule is that people fear that that evidence will have an outsized prejudicial value against the defendant in a way that it's, it would be overweighted in a manner that is not fair to the defendant. So it's a kind of hindsight or outcome bias. Now, here's an observation that occurred to me while I was thinking about your article. So at first glance, I would have said that your paper and all of these experimental studies was primarily aimed at examining the accuracy-based rationale, the second piece that you were talking about regarding hindsight bias and the desire to have the rule to counteract hindsight bias. But then thinking about it some more, 
I think actually that your study also has something to say about the incentive rationale, that first rationale you suggested. And that's because if defendants misperceive what a jury is going to do with the evidence of the subsequent remedial measure, that actually affects their incentives or their psychological mindset in deciding to take those measures. Maybe defendants overestimate how harmful this kind of evidence will be to their case, or in fact, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, maybe juries will actually reward them in some ways for taking the remedial measure. Yeah, that's exactly right. A lot of what I do with my many different projects is just sort of test assumptions about how we think juries behave. And so some defendants think that maybe I shouldn't fix things because if, if this ever gets in, I'm going to be found liable. You know, and I got asked that question by several trial attorneys when they saw some of my other work. And they said, can you figure this out? And I said, oh, let's give it a go. And so the, the result was actually the experiments we ran that are subject of this paper. I want to talk briefly about your experimental setup because you spend a bunch of time rather carefully detailing how your work improves on the existing literature. Give us a sense of how you set up your experiments. And here I'm specifically pointing to your choice of using video and your sample sizes and that kind of thing. And then tell us why you felt it was important for you to do this study and why it was an important addition to the literature. With respect to the methodology and why I think it's sort of a best practices, I think there's a couple things going on. At least, and this is certainly not all studies currently, but maybe say studies from 10 years ago and past, oftentimes were one page written descriptions of a case. And they would vary one thing in it and they would say, well, gee, if we see people deciding things differently by varying a sentence here or two here, that we observe an effect and we can make some conclusions from that. And I think there's a real problem or danger with over-relying on studies that have that short a stimulus. And namely, folks can sort of figure out what you're testing sometimes. If you give police officers one paragraph and it may say African-American or criminal or, or someone that might be accused of a criminal, they may right away realize, oh, this is what you're trying to do to me. And so what we do is we create a PowerPoint presentation representing the case and we have presentations by a judge, the plaintiff, the defendant, and then the judge again giving the final instructions. In it, we provide images of the plaintiff, maybe images of the injury or the context of where they got hurt. We talk about damages. We talk about liability. There are defenses behind that. I believe that most of my videos tend to last around 15 minutes. So they're not nearly as long as a real trial, but they're certainly far longer than a one-page written vignette. And by doing so, we think we bury the ability for any participant to sort of figure out what we're testing. If they assume we're testing something, I think there's just too much going on there for them to really figure out what that is. The second thing we do is in prior studies, or a lot of studies, again, I say pre-2010 studies maybe, most of them were often done with students because those were very convenient to obtain with relatively small numbers, you know, maybe 100, 150, 200, whatever the number is. And we try to get a much larger sample size because we're putting our videos online and we're recruiting them through crowdsourcing platforms. We pay them some amount and we can get, say, a thousand participants. The two experiments that are involved in this paper, I think we had over 1,700 different participants actually render verdicts on liability and damages. I hear a couple of attributes here which are very interesting to me. So 
you pointed to the fact that you used images, which may or may not have been traditionally used. Because you're using video, you're presenting evidence orally rather than in written form, which is much closer to what's going on in a trial, and maybe that matters, and I'm not sure whether there are studies that suggest that or not. There's the matter of the amount of time, so you were concerned about how long the stimulus is. And then on top of all of this, you also have the largest sample size. Do you think this is the direction that most of these experimental studies are going to go in the future? So I certainly think a larger sample sizes with a more diverse population is the way that we're seeing more and more studies. So I think I certainly don't want to say my study is the only studies doing this. I think that's the new modern way to conduct studies is to get larger sample size. And there are a lot of people now conducting them online. And so by doing so online, we can get that. Now, the video perspective, doing the videos, I haven't seen as much of that around as the online large sample size. My expectation is we'll see it more. I just think it's more involved. I told you earlier, I was listening to some of your uh, prior podcasts, and I think one of the problems was identified by one of your earlier guests, Barbara Spellman, which is a lot of times these studies were conducted by psychologists, and they don't know the law as well as people from the legal field. And the result is, I think they have a harder time making a richer stimulus that will accurately reflect what might actually happen in trial. So let's talk a little bit about the contribution to the literature. If I remember correctly, there have been studies on Rule 407, but those were done in that pre-2010 method, or they had smaller sample sizes, they were done based on written vignettes, and you're contributing by creating this richer set of data. That's right, and also the de they didn't have as many dependent variables. If I recall correctly, there's one study, and it checked on liability, okay? And so when we test things, the sense behind Rule 407 is it's probably going to affect liability. It's the fact that you did something looks like a concession, or there's hindsight bias that says you could have done better. And so that's the most obvious thing to check. But something I try to do in almost all my experiments is have juries make decisions like they really would make in a real trial. In other words, juries never just decide liability. They decide damages. They decide contributory negligence. And so we try to give them as close as we can an accurate jury verdict form. And then we look at these other dependent variables. I have to say, time and time again, we've found that things that we think would only affect liability affect damages, and issues that we think would only analytically affect damages affect liability. And in fact, that's what we found in this paper. Talk a little bit more about the vignettes you used here. And here, I'm going to let you choose between whether you want to talk about the first or the second experiment. I think we really only have time to talk about one of them, although, of course, feel free to talk about the result from both of them as we go forward. I'll just sort of broadly say there was both one experiment on sort of a negligence case and another experiment on a product's liability case. I'll describe the negligence case. So essentially, in that situation, we have a person fall down, which she alleged was an unduly steep set of stairs in her apartment building. And there was prior evidence that other people had fallen down. And there's evidence that it's against the standard practice of new buildings, although it was up to code in where it was, it was actually not up to code in other places. So we could have some dispute about whether the stairs were safe or not. And then we had multiple versions of this. So to conduct the experiment, we created different versions. So in the first version, we just simply have that case. We have a negligence case based on duly steep staircase. In the second case, we add subsequent remedial measures. We layer on the fact that 
after the injury or after the accident, the landlord actually changed the staircase and put a landing in there to make it safer so that someone wouldn't fall down. Then we added on two other conditions in two other manipulations and two more experimental conditions. First, we added a limiting instruction telling the jury you can't consider the subsequent remedial measures for the purpose of determining blameworthiness. But you can use it for the other purpose, which is to impeach the witness, which is actually uh, we sort of open the door to the possibility of impeachment in the testimony. So we had one simple limiting instruction. And then we added in a fourth condition, a more complex explanation of the simple limiting instruction saying, this is why we have rule 407. And there is a lot of research out there that says limiting instructions to use evidence for purpose A, but not B are ineffective. But we found one study by Sherry Diamond that suggested, but if you give an explanation, it then becomes effective. And so we thought we would try to replicate that in a different context. So let's talk results. First, liability. Does the introduction of a subsequent remedial measure help plaintiffs or help defendants? So the introduction of subsequent remedial measures clearly helps plaintiffs on liability. How much it helps, it clearly depends on the facts of the individual case. But That was probably our clearest finding in both experiments. Plaintiffs win more often. What about limiting instructions? Do they work? So there the story is a little more complicated, and part of this deals with effect size and the like. So we really didn't see any effect or almost no effect with a simple limiting instruction. So the the conventional wisdom limiting instruction is ineffective seem to be confirmed by our experiments. But when we also looked at the more complicated limiting construction that provided an explanation for Rule 407, we started seeing an effect. I sort of want to caution you, we were at the edge of statistical significance. And so if we saw this by itself, we'd go, hmm, this is interesting, and maybe we want other people to follow up and see if they're seeing this. But in effect, we were actually following up on Diamond's prior work. So we seem to be showing some effect. Now, to be clear, the effect did not eliminate the original effect of subsequent remedial measures on liability. It just reduced how much the plaintiff would win, but it didn't eliminate how much more they would win by those subsequent remedial measures. So you get the sense that some of the subjects were more likely to follow the limiting instruction when explained or discounting a little bit more because once the explanation was given, then the move would be, oh, yes, I understand as a matter of probative value, I don't want to actually use this subsequent remedial measure to basically think that this is a admission of guilt. The cognitive mechanism is unknown. We didn't really search that out. Now, I'm very skeptical that they're actually literally following the limiting instruction, saying, I'm going to take it into account for A, but use it for B. I think they're doing something more like what you suggest in that latter part of your question, which is, I think they're saying, well, the judge is telling me something that is sort of helpful for the defendant. Give the defendant a little boost here. Don't treat the evidence as inculpatory as you would normally. And they give some internal check mark on the scale or put a little thumb on the scale for the defendant there. So that's my intuition, but we haven't shown the mechanism. Finally, in terms of results, I want to talk about damages, which I think is probably the most interesting surprise in your study. What do these SRMs, these subsequent remedial measures, do to the damage assessment by the jury? So in one of our experiments, but not the other, we found that damages were reduced. And it was reduced both in terms of 
the raw number of damages that juries would award for subsequent remedial measures, as well as they actually found contributory negligence a little more often, which was a little odd. And so when those two effects were added together, the damages that the plaintiff received were actually smaller than they otherwise would be. Now, by the way, when you say contributory negligence, this is not a comparative regime, so this would be an on-off contributory negligence regime? No, actually, my mistake. It was comparative negligence. I'm sorry. Okay. It was comparative negligence. So there were two mechanisms contributing to why juries actually awarded plaintiffs less money. One was the raw damage award was less, and the second was that findings of comparative negligence favored the defendant more, and the net result was the plaintiff received less money in one experiment. Any explanation on this rather counterintuitive result? So what you have here is introduction of what's normally thought to be inculpatory evidence against a defendant, and instead the jury is backing off not liability, but actually the punishment given to the defendant. Yeah, so I think there's actually a, a pretty good explanation in the literature. I have to admit that when we created the experiment, I, I wasn't really thinking about it. We just always, you know, measure everything. And But then when I was digging a little deeper, damages is often related to the blameworthiness of the conduct, right? So it's not shocking to say that if the defendant behaved really poorly, regardless of the injury, we often see the juries actually award more damages. So if we hold the injury constant, bad behavior gets you bigger damages. I think what we're seeing in this case is actually good behavior. The defendant is actually saying, oh, my bad, I'll, I'll fix this problem. And we might see the opposite effect. We're going to reduce damages. So I think that's the intuition behind that. There are ways to test this that we didn't put in in this experiment. We could add mechanisms like a blameworthiness and see how blameworthy did you think the defendant was in these different conditions. And we might do that in a subsequent follow-up because I'm now working on another project where we're looking more specifically at how much blameworthiness plays in awarding damages generally. It's so interesting. So I basically made a Freudian slip there by talking about punishment and you were talking about blameworthiness. Of course, in the regime, it really should be if the defendant was sufficiently negligent, then the award would be the full damages, and you don't care about the grades of culpability that the defendant engaged in. But what you're suggesting here is, I think, the very intuitive notion that jurors don't play by that game. What they do is they assess how blameworthy the defendant is, and yes, compensation comes into the picture, but also something about moral culpability and therefore some notion of punishment, I think. That's exactly right. We call it compensatory damages. In theory, we think of it as compensatory damages, but that legal view may be inconsistent with how juries actually apply compensatory damage awards. Let's move to implications of the study. Now, I think here you make quite clear in your study and that the usual caveats apply, which is that this is only one study and you, know, you have to produce a whole lot more data to really know what's going on. But based on what you've learned so far, what does this suggest about Rule 407? Is there anything we can say about whether it's desirable or justifiable? You know, that's the, the million-dollar question here. One thing that I noticed when I was sort of doing the doctrinal research behind this is how different the application of Rule 407 is because of both the amount of exceptions and how easy it is to take advantage of the exceptions. And, and I saw a judicial resistance to actually applying those exceptions because of the ease in which you could invoke them. 
I guess my hope was that we could answer this question, but I really think or answer whether we should be applying these exceptions strongly or not. And I don't think I have an answer for that because I think what it really means is cases are very, very different. And the reason I say this is because experiment one and experiment two, the size of the effects were different when we had the same, even if we identified the same effects. Sometimes we saw one effect, the damages effect in one experiment, but not the other, possibly because the good feelings from the subsequent remedial measure was sort of different in one subsequent remedial measure than the other. And so what it seems to me, and I think it should be gratifying for the justice system that facts really do matter a lot to these juries. I think it makes it difficult for researchers to make generalizations. And I think that we've often made generalizations based on the pre-2010 stylized, easy experiments that show clear-cut results. But I think that as you add more facts you get very, very different results and different size of results based on those facts of the case. Okay, so maybe no conclusions for lawmakers and policymakers now. What about litigants or better yet, defense attorneys? So this one, I think the answer is probably clear. If you're worried about liability primarily, you don't want to have introduced evidence of subsequent remedial measures. You don't want, you want to fight it hard. Sometimes liability actually is not where you're fighting. Maybe you sort of know that you're going to be tagged. If you know they're going to be tagged and you got damages, the two parties ought to be taking the exact opposite position. The plaintiff will be not wanting to introduce evidence of subsequent remedial measures, while the defendant will be going, no, 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 look how great a company I am. I, I fixed everything. So it's an odd situation, depending where you put your priorities, is whether or not you want the evidence in or the evidence out. Uh, fascinating. It depends on what the posture is in the case and where you think you're going to lose or where you're going to fight hardest. That's a very interesting outcome based on your study. Final question for you. What's next? I know that evidence is not your primary area of research. You do a lot of work in patent law, but you do work in this space. Are there more evidence studies on the horizon? And I think you had gestured toward potentially one earlier in our interview? Or are you planning to explore more of the damages effects that you saw? So we are actually, I just conducted another experiment on the damages side, basically manipulating blameworthiness and seeing how compensatory damages change. And so the answer to that is, the early answers, they're going to change. We also have some manipulations on jury verdict to see if if we're getting maybe a double recovery on punitive damages. In other words, are they punishing both on compensatory damages and on punitive damages? Does that punishment differ if we bifurcate the jury award? In some cases, we would say, just decide compensatory now, and then we'll have a different evidentiary hearing and we'll decide punitive damages. How does that affect this sort of interplay? That's what we're looking at right now. We have a data about that, but we're sort of sifting through the data. Well, Bernard, thanks for shedding some important light on how Rule 407 works and giving us and practicing attorneys some food for thought on how to use it and how to think about it going forward. Great having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ed. As you have undoubtedly noticed over the course of this podcast, I really like studies that probe the assumptions underlying the rules of evidence. And so this episode on Bernard's study of Rule 407 is hardly an accident. The evidentiary rules have historically been grounded in lots of armchair psychology, and it's nice to get some hard data from time to time. It's even nicer 
when the hard data offers some twists that demonstrate that juries are not so easily manipulated. We like to think that juries work only within the legal structures that we impose on them. For example, that the assessment of liability is binary. But juries don't, or at least Bernard's study suggests that jury behavior is more complicated than we might first think. Compensatory damages are not just compensatory, but may have punitive elements mixed in. Evidence of subsequent remedial measures sits at this intersection. The fact that the defendant improved his staircase, or the safety features of his product, does in fact tend to help prove liability. But at the same time, it also helps to show that the defendant is a good faith actor and therefore less deserving of punishment, even if, technically, the inquiry is not about punishment at all. For such a seemingly simple rule, Rule 407 certainly raises a number of interesting and difficult theoretical questions. For example, is ex post behavior even relevant to a legal proceeding? I and recent scholars on this podcast, like Maggie Whitland, would say yes, but this question is controversial in the literature. Do jurors overweigh evidence of subsequent remedial measures? Here, as Bernard rightly points out in his paper, we don't really know. It's hard to quantify exactly what the jury is supposed to do with a subsequent remedial measure, although... I guess I can imagine a future experiment trying to do just that. Finally, is Rule 407 even focused on improving accuracy? To my mind, I've long thought of it as almost entirely about incentivizing defendant behavior, though perhaps my conversation with Bernard today has made me think more about its use in counteracting hindsight bias. In any event, Bernard's new study arguably raises more questions than it answers. I'm looking forward to finding out what he discovers next. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Branstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.